0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Prizman, and I'm so pleased to be joined today by Donovan X. Ramsey. He's a journalist, author, and voice on issues of race, politics, and patterns of power in America. His reporting has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, GQ, Ebony, and Essence. He has been a staff reporter at the LA Times, News One, and The Griot, and has served as an editor at the Marshall Project in Complex. And his new book is devastating and wonderful. And it's called When Craft Was King. Welcome, Donovan.
1: Hey, Maris. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, a pleasure. Donovan, you've been working on this book for so many years, and it it really shows the care that you put into it, both the reporting and the writing. And I'm kind of wondering how it, or if the story changed over the years. How did the reporting inform what you wrote, um, what were the expectations you had for this book when you started and and how do you think it ended?
1: The reporting absolutely changed the shape of the book. The book proposal that I had, well, first let me say that the original idea that I had was just to write a book about Washington DC during the crack era. And I thought, you know, DC is a small enough city. I can kind of like wrap my arms around it completely. Um, always wanted to talk to people who experienced the crack epidemic from different perspectives. And I thought, well, how easy if they're all in one city, like maybe they'll even know each other, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and as I first did my research before I ever did any interviewing um, and I was looking at the data of the rising ball of crack, I saw that um, it hit different cities at different times. Um, and it was based on local factors. And I thought, oh, well, that means that every city really had a different experience of the crack epidemic. And it wouldn't be fair, it wouldn't do the story justice, I should say, to just focus on DC. Um, so then I started going out to, uh, in 2018, I traveled to the hardest hit cities for that year and um, and just reported in the field for about a year. And that completely changed the shape of the book as well, um, you know, because I had uh, also the idea that I would do the 10 hardest hit cities and that each of those cities would have, you know, one um, sort of protagonist. But I really fell in love with the four that I settled on for the book with Lenny Woodley in South Central Los Angeles, Kurt Schmoke out of Baltimore, Elgin Swift out of Yonkers, New York, and um, Sean McCray out of Newark. And uh, I just really wanted to get their stories out there and for them to be as fully formed as possible. So it went from ten cities to just four cities and and four characters.
0: Yeah, I the characters are all so fascinating and so well done tell me a little bit about your interview process with like did you embed how how did you get these four different people to to open up and and even just remember some of the the most traumatic times
1: it started with really being able to share my own upbringing and its connection to the crack era that to be able to you know, get them to open up. I had to open up you know about my very humble beginnings and the neighborhood that I grew up in and some of the stuff that I saw and I think that that was a way in um because people do not often talk about the crack era, um especially if they you know live through some of these traumas. so I think that just being able to to kind of offer that, which I usually don't you know as a journalist talk about myself mm. um. That that was something that helped them appreciate sort of where where I was coming from and wanting to write this book, um, and you know from there it was just hours and hours of interviewing, um, sometimes in person, sometimes over the phone, to um, to get their stories, and uh, and because the book is told chronologically, I asked them to start from the very beginning. You know, <laughs> what are your earliest memories, and then we did it over and over again. So, you know, people have an idea of what their story is. um, And so they might give you the abbreviated version in the first interview, take you from, you know, I don't know, 1965 to to the present day. And they're like, well, that's it. That's my whole story. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, you know, there's, you know, so much else that's there. So then it was going back and saying, hey, you know, when you talked about, you know, having trouble in school as a kid, What did you mean by that? And that could be like an entire session unto itself, um, let alone, you know, the stuff I think most closely related to the crack epidemic where, um, you know, in the case of Lenny, somebody who, you know, was addicted to crack for decades um, and who experienced lots of really traumatic events growing up, uh, there are entire swaths of time that are completely lost to her. Um, So, you know, Interviewing her I think was special because I had to, uh, in some cases, just talk to her about the things that were happening nationally, and that would spark memories, or I would share with her bits from my reporting and that would spark memories.
0: Yeah, and and you can see that even in the structure of the book, that um, bringing in current events from the time and and, and various moments in, in American history, um guide both the interviews but also the reader sets the reader up for for what's going on tell me about the structure a little bit
1: i actually do not read a lot of narrative nonfiction <laughs> <laughs> i am uh big on poetry i'm big on biographies and autobiographies um and you know and also on fiction um so i try to not read a ton of it going into this book because I wanted the book to take the shape that I felt like it needed to take and to have the tone that, that it needed to have. So um, it came about sort of out of this need to tell both the meta history of cracks rise and fall, but knowing that, that the public record would not be sufficient in building what felt like a real history so knowing that I needed to have the stories of individuals, which is why the um, you know why I call it a people's history of a misunderstood era, um, this way of mixing both you know official documented events with memory and how people experienced it. so um, so that's why those elements are there. And then I just said, let's just do it chronologically. You know that there are lots of ways to, to sort of structure the story and put it together. Let's just go from beginning to end. And and then the challenge from there was just figuring out how to weave in and out of the personal narratives um, that really don't connect at many moments, um, but that hopefully, but but to weave them together in a way that felt natural and seamless and where they could actually interact with each other um, by, you know, where you chose to go from Lenny to Kurt. Kurt to Elgin and Elgin to Jean.
0: It works so beautifully. Um, I I also think that it, this book is very much a story about media. Um, and I'm wondering, if I mean, even just I I had never heard of the Janet Cook story that you cover. The idea that from the very beginning news coverage was sensationalist.
1: Yeah, that's something that. You know, I was really disappointed when I looked back at the record and saw just how um, poor the journalism was around the crack era. I mean, I could even say, you know, when it came to something like trying to find um, an image to put on the cover of the book, I wanted to get to something that represented everyday life during the crack era. And it was nearly impossible with all of the, you know, the sort of team of researchers at Random House. You know, that all that they could find from that era were policing images, Mm -hmm. images that were sort of staged of people holding crack cocaine, um, images Mm -hmm. of so-called crack babies. And I think that that's so representative of what the coverage was. It was about these tropes that were easily digestible and also made people really afraid um, and not necessarily about this event and how it was experienced. It's a shame because I think that the that the journalism industry was really, um, i trying to think of a nice way to say it in marriage, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, maybe I don't have to be nice. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, that, that journalists failed during the crack era, that there weren't enough people who were curious and who um, were thorough. In their reporting and as a result that they ended up passing on a lot of misinformation and propaganda in some cases from from the government and in other cases you know they they created their own misinformation and propaganda so um that's something that um, i hope we're better at today than we were then
0: i just made a face
1: (laughs) (laughs) i just made a face too
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's so resonant today that even just the idea that I have family members who don't live in New York City, and they see news reports and ask me if I'm afraid. Um, Yeah. And um, there's really no way to uh, tell them otherwise.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, being being from Ohio, and I lived in New York for eight years, and that the fear of crime in big cities is still so strong, because the messaging, right, is that you know, cities are dangerous places because there are dangerous people there. And you know the reality of it is that the vast majority of, let's say, like the violence that does happen in big cities is intentional and pointed. <laughs> you know, and there are people that have relationships to each other. And all of that is, you know, sad and meaningful as well. But it, but it's not the you know the like bedlam that is positioned to be.
0: You've spoken a lot about this in interviews, but I it, I it really seemed like a coda to the book that as you were writing, you noticed a, a physical toll that that writing the book had had taken on you, and I'm just wondering. If you are aware of those feelings while you're doing it, if, if there are ways that you took care of yourself while you're doing it and, and and how you are now.
1: I think in part just naturally and also as a result of growing up in um, an environment that was, you know, scary at times, like I'm a super anxious person. Like my, um, you know, antennas like always up for like anything that could happen. And um, and as a result, here's a better, you know, I, I think another way to say it is, I'd always sort of channel my anxiety into my journalism and just trying to understand things that were confusing or scary or intimidating to me, that that made it feel more manageable. And the crack epidemic trying to Wrap my arms around this story and do and do it justice, it took so much out of me, and I did not realize until I was nearly done with the book that, oh, Lena, the reason when I sit down and I get really itchy after I start writing is because I'm getting hives. <laughs> You know, and I'm like a thoughtful enough person that I could have figured that out, but it just never occurred to me that I was having a reaction to the process or to the material that I was um, actually like metabolizing as I was trying to put it in book form and make sense of it. Um, and, you know, my anxiety got so bad that my blood pressure was just, I mean, at dangerous levels. I was getting heart palpitations, um, had to wear a heart monitor. Um, you know, kind of scary stuff. And, you know, it wasn't just the stress of writing, you know, a book. It was, I think it was the material,
0: yeah. you know,
1: it was um, learning um, the stories that I did and interviewing hundreds of people often about the worst things that ever happened to them. And then letting that information pass through me um, to, to make it to the page. It it really impacted me. And I have since, you know, made a practice of um, taking breaks, of doing things to take care of myself as I'm working and also just to, um, to sort of work in um, healing into every aspect of my work and of my life. And I hope that everybody impacted by the crack era has the opportunity to do that. Because, you know, whether or not they know it, they're carrying around these, these, these little burdens that are kind of just draining them in little ways, sometimes in big ways. Um, Elgin Swift, one of the characters um, in the book, um, talked to me a lot about the nightmares that he has. And whenever he has a nightmare, it's always in the apartment that he grew up in. and he always ends up in prison at the end of the nightmare. Um, I don't think that it's uh, a coincidence that he's somebody that's also super ambitious mm-hmm. and is constantly working. And, you know, I, I I characterize him as a hustler because everything that happens, he always thinks about, well, how can I turn this into an, into an opportunity to make money? And, you know, that can make you a very successful guy as, as you know, he's a, uh, a superstar car salesman, and you know he's an investor, and he does lots of you know cool things that have made him um, uh, a, a pretty big financial success. But it's but that's also a burden, you know, to live with, to be afraid of ending up back where you started. So uh, we talk about therapy all the time, and anybody that reads this book, if you see a little bit of yourself in any of these characters or if any of these scenarios you know resonate with you you know i would encourage that you um investigate those memories and really try to incorporate some practices into your life that will um uh help you integrate those memories into who you want to be who you are now
0: I love that, and I, I think one of the things that you do so beautifully in this book that seems so obvious, but it, it still struck me, was grappling with the the level of stigma involved in in the crack epidemic. Like, sure, if we white people are going to do cocaine, that's that's we're just experimenting. Um, And then especially with with Lenny, you see just how dehumanizing um, media and culture and, and people can be.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the, I think, privileges of climbing up the socioeconomic ladder over the years is that I've gotten to see just how incoherent people's positions are on drugs, right? That when I was at the sort of community that I was uh, born into had to exist among so much stigma. You know, even if you didn't use drugs or had any connection to drugs, you sort of lived under this cloud of this suspicion that maybe you were a drug dealer, you know, maybe for a person of my generation, you were a crack baby. And that, you know, those were some of the worst things that you could be. And then, you know, I get to grad school, I get to work in New York, and people are just doing cocaine recreationally. And that to me, you know, I was absolutely scandalized because of the messaging, you know, that I had been given. And I, you know, think that I'm still like a bit of a a prude about substances um, because I've always been terrified of them. And, you know, it's incredible that we could hold so many attitudes about, drugs in this country um at like one time for different people given different circumstances and i think that the um, you know that the truth of it is that you know drugs are a fact of life in that drug epidemics come and go based on the climates that we create um then the the need that we give people to want to escape and to check out um that said, uh, there are a lot of drugs that are really addictive and have serious um, harmful effects, including, you know, overdose death and drugs should not be taken lightly. But I, you know, think that it doesn't help that we have inconsistent messaging about drugs, depending on the people who consume them. Um,
0: Absolutely. You know. um, I, I even think like, you know, you you really take us through the political landscape of, of of this era, and and I think one of the things, like, yes, I, Nancy Reagan say no to drugs. That that really <laughs> um, it, it is something I think that is is a kind of universal symbol. But I I hadn't realized one that. The Nixon administration really, really started it off like the the campaign to associate drugs with crime.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that something that. um, Yeah, the war on drugs in earnest goes back as far as Richard Nixon and his administration's um, efforts to tie drugs to the progressive left with uh, activists. Um, anti-war activists with Black Panthers, that that was something that was very intentional in sort of targeting those groups through drugs. Um, Nixon was unable to carry out his his war on drugs because he resigned in shame and dishonor. But um, Ronald Reagan was there to pick it right on up. And he really ran with that ball and took it all the way. Um, you have that in the form, of, of course, to just say no campaigns and all of the messaging of the 80s and 90s. Um, I would say that, you know, it was talked in propaganda. It wasn't uh, messaging that was done by people who were scientists. They were, um, you know, the National, what is it, Alliance for a Drug-Free America. No, those were marketers. So they were trying to elicit a feeling, fear, in people by by really any means, Um So they gave us the idea that, you know, drug addicts were zombies. and They gave us the ideas that, you know, drug dealers were super predators and that crack was a super drug, Um, all of which created, you know, mythology around crack and maybe, you know, scared lots of people from doing it, but it also created a lot of misinformation and shame. Um, Aside from the messaging piece, you know, you have legislation. Um, in going back as far as the Reagan administration, that really created our system of mass incarceration. And, you know, it was Ronald Reagan. I um, also want to point out that Joe Biden has his hands on every piece of that legislation um, from, I think, as early as about 84 all the way to the 94 crime bill. Um, you know, it was an issue that you couldn't lose with it and i think that that says a lot about our politics that that um fear is such a powerful tool and that um fear and racial division can be a winning ticket
0: you know one of the one of the things that really stuck out at me you know i i knew that clinton was bad Uh, I knew even about Joe Biden's efforts. Um, What I didn't, what really hit me was you, you list the key Democrats who supported the 1994 act. And of course, even Bernie Sanders (laughs) is right in the mix. And it's like, "Mm." (laughs)
1: yeah, well, you know what? That was the, the, the policy nerd in me, like there are beats in the, you know, the book is, uh, is is over 400 pages long and I think it's because it is a big story, but also because, you know, a book like this had not been written before. And I thought it was such a shame that we are decades out and that we didn't have an authoritative book about the crack era. So, you know, I knew that I wanted to tell these dynamic stories and part of how I structured was thinking, oh, but I have to interrupt them with these large pieces of history, because the history is so important. And lists like that, you know, the book is full of lists of names and yeah. places. And, you know, that's really there for the record. It's there for, you know, to hold people accountable. Um, also for folks that, that you know, in some cases when I'm talking about places in Baltimore, you know, I want readers to to feel it you know, when they're reading street names that are familiar or like the names of like restaurants and stores that, you know, um, that there was a lot of work to be done with a book like this. And um, yeah, and if and some of that work, I think, is holding politicians accountable to, to what they did.
0: Absolutely. Before I start to ask you for book recommendations, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit About the role of pop culture in 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 the in the crack epidemic, because you do such a wonderful job of of showing us various facets and which ones were actually impactful.
1: Yeah, um, I first want to say that you know I did a lot of writing about the pre-crack era, and I was fascinated by the pop culture of that period and the world that it told young people to aspire to. So, you know, for those of us that were not there for the early 80s, you know, it was all about um, Black people crossing over into the mainstream. So I highlight, you know, the fact that so many sitcoms from the Jeffersons um, to Different Strokes to Webster to Give Me a Break, that they all had sort of as their central storyline, this idea that Black people were moving out of the ghettos and and into suburban or sometimes wealthy white spaces and that became uh aspirational that you know there was uh, a huge song in the late 70s early 80s kind of became like the the black national anthem for a period ain't no stopping us now by mcfadden and whitehead and that was like i said it it was an anthem it was that there was this idea that the civil rights movement had come in and removed lots of obstacles in that we were supposed to just move from where we had been to, you know, this dream space. And um, I think what we know now is that after great periods of progress, that you also see um, retrenchment. And that, you know, at the period that the messaging was saying, you can do anything and you should be moving up. um, But there were lots of Barriers being put in the way of poor black people, um, so that created, I think, this uh, tension and this angst of feeling like you should be living better than you are. That it was morning in America, as you know, Ronald Reagan called it, and you couldn't. People couldn't figure out why they couldn't uh, have that as well. So that a you know, a substance like crack. You know, appears and it is a vehicle for a better life, and I think many people um, took that as an opportunity to kind of get their piece of the pie to consistently get, sort of get their piece of the American dream. Um, but then you have, throughout the '80s, hip hop as this as this other voice, um, and people, rappers, talked about hip hop being like the voice of the marginalized and representative of what was happening in, like, America's ghettos. And, you know, when I would hear that as a kid, as, like, a person that was a fan of hip-hop, I thought, okay, you know, <laughs> like, it, it felt, I think, kind of like an convenient thing to say. But the more that I um, was able to see that, you know, hip-hop as early as 1982, 83, that there were songs about crack, Um, At a time before the media, you know, before news media was ever focusing on crack, you know, that the news media didn't start writing stories until about um, 86, 87. Um, But hip hop was already there. And the messaging from hip hop was consistent, at least as it pertains to crack, which is anti-crack messaging. It was, you know, using this drug is awful. You're playing yourself if you use this drug. Even selling the drug is awful. You know, you listen to a song like this comes later in the 90s, but uh, everyday struggle by the notorious BIG is literally about how terrible it is to be a drug dealer. <laughs> you know, the lyrics are, uh, I don't want to live no more. Sometimes I feel death knocking at my front door. And to think that people heard music like that and thought that rappers were glamorizing that lifestyle, you know, means that they were really missing the point. And um, luckily, Young people who were listening to the music didn't miss the point, that it was, you know, young people, I think, impacted by that messaging more than the Just Say No campaign and also seeing what was happening in their neighborhoods that made different decisions as it related to drugs, and ultimately ended the crack era by not continuing that trend.
0: I love that. And I think that's such a lovely place to end with a, at least <laughs> a ray of hope.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. You know what? And to that point though, you know, it's I think worth saying that, you know, there are a lot of really devastating things in the book. But I start um the sections about each of the characters, the narratives, writing about where they are today. Because you know, we we never celebrated the fact that Black America survived the crack epidemic, that our nation survived the crack epidemic, that, you know, there was no bell that we rang to say it was over. Um, we sort of just moved on. Right. But it is over, that there are not, you know, that the majority of people who use crack today are that early cohort abusers who are still addicted and grappling with their addiction. Um, but, you know, we we ended it and we survived it. And there are so many stories and lessons to be learned um, about how we survived it. So, you know, for, for, for the lows of the book, I think that that also just kind of gives you an insight into the highs, um, you know, for like lack of a better term that, that, you know, we live in a much better world now um, in many ways, and we're stronger in those places where we were weak, you know, and that those vulnerabilities um, hopefully don't exist anymore because we've short ourselves up. Now, I should say, though, that there's always the danger of another drug epidemic, that um, all that it takes is a level of disaffection among people for them to want to check out. And, you know, a new substance comes along. Um, people might know where I'm going with this, right. That, you know, you have opioids, right. That have become, um, really dangerous around the country and, uh, opioids in the form of fentanyl have become especially dangerous that it is, um, you know, it's not a super drug, (laughs) you know, like, I don't want to kind of give that perception of it, but fentanyl is dangerous because it has been, because it's a synthetic opioid that's super accessible and super cheap. So lots of people have access to it, including people that have no previous experience with opioids in the form of prescription pills or with with heroin, Um, because it is super cheap. It's being um, laced into other drugs like cocaine. So people that may have a tolerance to something like cocaine or have an idea of how much cocaine they can consume are actually consuming large amounts of fentanyl and overdosing and, and dying. Um, all of that's awful. And, you know, we can hopefully do something about it if we look to the crack era. If we, you know, remember that we've been here before and we take seriously that Black folks have stories and have lessons that we can actually share about how we got over it. You know, that... um and we got over by, uh, you know, community. You know, the, like the the sort of thing that we do so well, which is making family out of strangers and keeping each other alive. You know, that's what community does. Uh, you know, it's not big policy. It's things like, you know, grandmothers taking in grandchildren, or you know, churches saying, you know, we have a, a program for a weekend where you can stay here and hopefully you can you know, be, be safe enough to maybe get into recovery that until people are in a space where, where they could enter recovery, we just have to keep them alive. Um, and that's the lesson for me is harm reduction, harm reduction, harm reduction. And sometimes that's giving out Narcan and fentanyl testing strips, but sometimes it's saying, eh, here's a place you can stay tonight. Not the whole week, (laughs) but here's a place that you can stay tonight. And that really is the difference between life and death for so many people.
0: Donovan, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Before we go, please recommend some books for us.
1: Yeah. So I am just now getting back into my regular reading practice because writing the book was so, um, uh, consuming but the last book, funny enough, that I read before I really got into the writing uh, was uh, The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Um, I'm such a huge fan of Colson Whitehead. I've read, I think, pretty much all of his books now <laughs> at this point, and I just got the new one, um, which I haven't, I haven't opened up yet. Um, so I would definitely suggest that book. Um, but also I want to suggest a few books that are related to, to When Crack Was King, I would say in like book, book cousins, um, I would encourage people to read The Warmth of Other Suns if they haven't yet. And that's Isabel Wilkerson's book about the great migration of black folks from the South to Northern cities. So I like to think of When Crack Was King as picking up where The Warmth of Other Suns leaves off. Um, also, I think people should read, it's a little bit scholarly, but it's um, Khalil Gibran Muhammad's The Condemnation of Blackness. And it is an incredible history of um, the ways that Blackness has been criminalized in this country. And there are some shorter chapters there about the crack epidemic, but it you know, goes back to loitering and vagrancy laws and um, the black codes, you know, during, um, or after the period of, of enslavement in this country, but it sort of helps kind of build a framework for understanding where that war on drugs comes from. Um, there also, I want to recommend some poetry as well. So <laughs> I love a book called, uh, brutal imagination by Cornelius eating. It is, uh, a book of poetry, I think, from around 2000, 2001. And it is written from the perspective of a phantom. It is written from the perspective of a a fictional Black man that has been accused of a crime. And the crime is, um, you know, in the early, I think, or maybe in the mid-'90s, a woman named Susan Smith um, uh, drove her children into a lake and she told people that a black man did that a black man kidnapped her children and drove her car into a lake so this book is written from the perspective of that make believe black man um and it's imaginative and it's weird and it's sad and it's funny and it's scary it's you know all of those things but it was one of the uh pieces of wow. literature that i really pulled from in um in writing about the stereotypes of the crack era. So let's see, I gave you a little fiction.
0: You gave I gave me give me f- some
1: poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that feels that that feels comprehensive.
0: It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> Donovan, thank you so much. When crack was king is out now.
1: Maris, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure.